Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Hello and welcome to Lost in Science for another week. My name is Claire and... This is 30 minutes of science stories ready to go from us to you. And um, with me this week, I have, well, hello, Chris. Ahoy, ahoy. Hello, Claire. <laughs> Hi, how are you? Yeah, I'm really good. Good to, good to hear your voice. Good to chat science. What have mm. you got for us this week, Chris, uh, that's going to um, blow our scientific minds? I, I can't promise that, I'm afraid. You know, oh, I don't like to... Oh, you know you always under-promise, over-deliver. No, no, because this is this is the um, the the boring story that I just won't let go because it doesn't go anywhere. This is the <laughs> ongoing debate about the origins of COVID-19. And, um, oh, yes. Particularly the lab leak theories and stuff. And there's yep. been a new development in that the last couple of weeks that I thought I would address that because, and that's partly for me because I know in the past I have said, look, I'm really not convinced by these theories. Yeah. And I know a lot of people out there probably do subscribe to them uh-huh. or are interested in them. So I want to, you know, any time, any kind of new evidence or developments that come out, I like to touch on just so yep. you know that we are across it and we are doing a due diligence. All right, Chris, well, you are going to put the COVID theories of lab leaks to bed with this new research aren't you i'm not going to put it to bed it is just new developments <laughs> it hasn't changed anything from my point of view um i was so close to getting you to commit no, to that i can't i can't do that i can't do that i'm afraid <laughs> okay. i'm so sorry okay but more importantly uh Stu's going to be speaking to a special guest this week that's not right, more yes. importantly but you know in... no, I, you know let's let's be let's be honest here let's be honest here no, you're absolutely right, Claire. Um, Stu will be talking to Dr. Ellie Payne from the University of Tasmania's Institute for Mar- Marine and Antarctic Studies. So uh, she is working on the idea of growing seaweed in the deep ocean. Fantastic. Um, yeah, look, as a plan, I guess, to green the oceans to get more carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. But, yeah, so studying on why that could, be, that could be useful, but also what could be the obstacles there. And one of the things, turns out, is that you need certain minerals and nutrients. Things like iron and stuff mm. are required. And so, mm. yeah, trying to work out whether it will be feasible or not based on the um, what's available in the ocean. Right. How to make the oceans less anemic. I guess you could put it that way, yeah. How to, like... Um, I don't how know. To, how to ferrify the oceans. Yeah, that'll do. I'm trying to think of a good pun. I can't, I can't. No, I, I mean, none I of this, these are pun. Great. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Look, it gives new, it gives new meaning to the, um, the Iron Man races that they have in the, with the lifesavers mm, and stuff. Okay. No, uh, no. I mean, I think, I think you could probably do better and I'm sure, okay. I'm sure Ellie will do better. Yeah. Great. Well, on with the show. All right, yes, you're listening to Lost in Science, and I am once again 
going back to 2020 or 2019 even to look at the origins of the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, now, you may recall, Claire, that uh, this global pandemic that is in many ways still going on, let's be honest. Um, well, I mean, one way it isn't going on, the World Health Organization did say we're no longer in a global pandemic. That is That line in the sand has been drawn. That's true. That's true. And look, that makes all the difference. But there are still <laughs> there are still a lot of people being affected by it. Absolutely. Um, absolutely. Yeah. 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 And there will be for for years to come, most likely. Um, you know, things will eventually, I suppose, find their happy state. But um, it's it's a, it's a different world we live in at yeah. the moment. Yeah. Post COVID. Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, so as you may recall, this uh, this pandemic started, or is believed to have started, in the Chinese city of Wuhan. Um, yeah, I think I recall. You recall that. that. <laughs> uh, good, good. I'm glad you're with me there. Yeah. Now, um, and one of the big things there was the presence in that city of the Wuhan Institute of Virology happens to host a major virology institute that studies these coronaviruses. And yeah. a lot of people pointed to that as too much of a coincidence and there must be something going on. Plus, I think there's a general sort of dislike of all things coming out of that particular country and that particular government. Now... There hasn't been a lot of evidence for it. I've largely dismissed this as a conspiracy theory because it is mostly based on conspiracies. But there has been two big recent developments in this in this idea. So I don't know whether you remember, but part of this theory was the claim that, or the rumour, that some researchers at the Institute had been sick in late 2019 with respiratory symptoms. Right. And this is pointing to the fact that there could have been a leak and these people mm-hmm. were sick and then spread it to the rest of the population. Now, this was had been a long-standing rumour and for a long time there had been no more details. But now um, the supposed names of three researchers who had been ill have been leaked um, via, of all things, a Substack newsletter. What's that? Substack is like a newsletter service that people put out their opinions and stuff on it. This story was then picked up by the Wall Street Journal and has been spread further and stuff by social media and things. But yeah, it's since it was started on this particular, yeah, wow, newsletter on Substack. Okay. Called public, it is. Mm. Now that was from the uh, the official release of the um, the intelligence report from the U.S. government. Uh, now this was actually there was a law passed to declassify this report. Um, this was a report that was investigating the origins of the pandemic, in particular the notion that there could have been a lab leak. Now, the report itself, um, it's still got redactions in it. I believe they have now promised that they will release more details to Congress via special channels because they don't want to give away all their sources and things. So it's not a fully declassified report. It's only 10 pages long, which itself actually is not that impressive, to be honest. Um, but that report basically says the U.S. intelligence community couldn't agree on whether there was a lab leak or a natural origin for the pandemic. So those who are fans of the lab leak theory are, of course, pointing to the the alleged sick researchers um, who, like I said, have been named. Um, now, of course, these are actually real people, so it's possible mm. to get in touch with them. Mm. And they have since denied that they had COVID-19 back in 2019. Um, they also said that in February 2020, they were all tested 
um, for SARS-CoV-2 antibodies and they tested negative. Um, wow, there were tests for SARS-CoV-2 antibodies at that time. Well, they were getting on to try and do testing um, fairly early on, I think. I mean, I guess, you know, PCR testing and those sort of things were pretty quick to be developed. Mm-hmm. You know, the um, the viral uh, genome was released in, I think, late January wow. um, of yeah. 2020. But, I mean, this itself doesn't... I mean, if you're into the conspiracy theory, the the fact that they denied it, I guess, doesn't really prove anything because you can say that they're covering it up or being made to cover it up. Yeah. Um, now, the leaked reports also quote anonymous sources who say they're 100% certain that these rumours are true. But, of course, they're anonymous, so we can't know what evidence they're basing that on. The official report is much less convinced. It says, something along the lines, that um, the, inf- the rumours basically don't support or refute either hypothesis and that the researcher's symptoms could have been caused by any number of diseases and some of the symptoms were not consistent with COVID-19. So... They kind of put a, a pin in that, so to speak. Mm. Um, and, you know, just some of the names that have been leaked, it seems like there's been more opportunistic naming people perhaps than um, uh, than actual, the ones who were actually sick, because you know, they've denied being sick. Yeah, and look, some of the, um, I guess, yeah, this is where you can do, I guess, the, the polarisation that comes with these hypotheses about yeah. the origin of the pandemic, that there are basically these politically motivated camps on either side and they both put forward what sound initially like convincing arguments but i don't know i the the they tend to sometimes fall apart when you look into them i suppose <laughs> shall we say that um like for instance some of the reporting of the leak names emphasizes the uh the genetic modifications that are being made to viruses at the Wuhan institute but like the most virologists, in fact, the official report says that almost everyone agrees that the virus wasn't genetically engineered. So that doesn't really prove yeah. anything then if you mm-hmm. say they were, they were manipulating viruses when there's essentially no evidence or no one is convinced that it was manipulated. Um, now, of course, you could say that the US government is in the conspiracy too. Um, I don't know, that's going further down the conspiracy line. But the other side of things, I've seen claims about who the anonymous leakers that suggest that they have political motivations too. So I think we can just back away from all these conspiracies overall. I think, I think that's a wise decision. Chris. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, it is It is true, I think, that look until until there is a definitive source found whether it's natural or in a laboratory, then there is going to be arguments. Yeah. Um, and these sources may never be found. If there are cover-ups, obviously they may never be found. If you're hunting a single virus in a single cave somewhere, that could <laughs> never be found as well. Um, so, yeah, some of these, it may be possible that we'll be arguing about this stuff forever. I mean, there do seem to be big coincidences involved. The fact that it happened, like I said, in the city with this major virology institute is a coincidence. But it was also clear very early on that the cases were clustered around the Huanan seafood market, and which is not next door to the virology institute. And um, there has since been found more evidence that there was, you know, clearly the virus being distributed there, a couple of different strains present at the market. So, yeah, look, there are different lines of evidence. The value of all this is trying to work out how we could prevent a future pandemic. So maybe the best approach would be to act as if both are true and tighten procedures, you know, biosafety procedures in laboratories, but also do what we can to prevent 
more zoonotic leaks of viruses from animals, from spillovers from animals into humans, because that seems to be where past pandemics have come from, and that seems to be the greatest threat. Across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Lost in Science. So I've got with me today uh, Dr. Ellie Payne from the University of Tasmania. Thanks for joining us on Lost in Science. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. The first thing I want to ask is why on earth would anyone want to grow seaweed? I mean, most people sort of see seaweed, they go to the beach, they trip over it, it gets tangled around their legs when they're going for a swim. Why are you trying to grow seaweed? Yeah, so seaweed is a really important part of the marine ecosystem. It performs a lot of roles in the marine environment, such as a habitat for marine life, as well as performing really important nutrient cycling roles. So it takes up carbon dioxide out of the seawater and then converts it into organic carbon, which can then be stored within the seaweed tissue and used for you know, growth or reproduction. And then it can also be released back into the seawater as organic carbon or dissolved organic carbon which is contributing to the biological carbon cycle. It also takes up nitrogen, so nutrients from the seawater. And that is really important when you consider putting seaweed around, you know, there's these trials putting seaweed around fish farms where they're wanting to take up those extra nutrients that the salmon in Tasmania are releasing. And then the seaweeds are able to take up that excess nutrients out of the water and then convert it into biomass, seaweed biomass. But in the context of ocean afforestation, which is what my paper was about, ocean afforestation, it's actually a method of carbon dioxide removal. So in particular, people are wanting to grow seaweed to take up that extra carbon dioxide, which is in the seawater. But what were you actually trying to find out with your research? So this paper was looking at ocean afforestation in particular, and that is when you're growing seaweed offshore, so that is off the continental shelf, so in the open ocean, at great scale for the purpose of carbon dioxide removal. So that seaweed can be grown on either a static structure, so if you consider potentially an unused old oil rig, or a floating structure where it's going to float with the currents. And we wanted to actually look at whether the iron concentrations in the open ocean are able to support seaweed growth because iron, we already know, and this has been recorded in the literature for 20 years now, that the iron availability in the open ocean does not support the phytoplankton growth out there. So it actually limits primary productivity in the open ocean. And we see these regions that are high nutrient, low chlorophyll because the phytoplankton can't actually grow and take up all of that nitrogen and phosphate in the open ocean. So you see really low productivity in these regions and no one had considered this in terms of growing seaweed out in the open ocean. So we thought we're going to have to do some kind of laboratory experiment here, small scale, that can then translate to these different companies that are actually investing a lot of money into growing seaweed in the open ocean. I just ask, 
what is the difference between phytoplankton and what well, what is phytoplankton? Yeah, absolutely. No way. So phytoplankton are microalgae. So they are microscopic algae that are free floating and they live everywhere. So in all in freshwater environments, in saltwater environments, estuaries, and they actually contribute approximately half of the oxygen that we breathe. So they are photosynthesizing and they're, you know, converting um, sunlight into energy and taking up carbon dioxide and dividing and making this beautiful organic carbon in the open ocean. So they are they are single-celled They algae, are, yes. Just floating around in the ocean. Exactly. Um, they actually form the base of the food web in the open ocean. So krill eat phytoplankton and then krill are consumed by fish and penguins and whales. So the phytoplankton is actually that very base of the food web there. They're an autotroph, which means that they use the sun's energy to create organic carbon from an inorganic carbon source. They also photosynthesize they do, in, yeah. a, in a similar way to land plants and also to seaweed. So seaweed is a kind of algae as well, correct? Seaweed is an algae, yes. So seaweed is actually a macroalgae. So that means it has a blade, so a big thallus, as well as a stipe and a hold fast, which it uses to attach to a rocky substrate or some other structure. Whereas or an abandoned, an abandoned oil rig. Exactly. Yes, <laughs> yeah. exactly. So if the microscopic algae are having trouble growing, obviously, as you're saying, it kind of makes sense that larger algae would have trouble growing. So what's the importance of the iron then? Yeah, so iron is very important for algae growth, both microalgae and macroalgae, and this is well documented in the literature. Iron is really important in photosynthesis. It actually controls the electron transport in the photosynthetic pathway in seaweeds and in phytoplankton. It's also really important in nitrogen uptake. So the enzymes which convert nitrogen in the cells in the seaweed cells and the algae cells they're actually made up of iron so when you have limiting iron concentrations you actually have reduced photosynthesis and reduced nitrogen uptake which obviously then links to an actual overall reduced growth of the algae and of the seaweed in our case which we found did you go out into the to the open ocean and test this or did you do this another way? Yeah, so this experiment was conducted in a lab. We did use open ocean seawater. So I didn't personally go into the Southern Ocean, but there was a cruise a few years ago on the investigator, which is the CSIRO's um, research vessel. They went down, I think it was 2018? this seawater was collected and in trace metal free conditions. So they take these carboys and they make sure they're really, really clean and there's no potential contamination from any other metal sources. And they sample the seawater at about 20 metres depth and then transport it up into onto the vessel and make sure it's all really secure and then there's going to be trace metal free. So there's no extra additions of any metal. And that ensures that we've got a representative seawater sample from 
the Southern Ocean or from wherever you're taking your open ocean seawater sample from. Yeah. And then, and then what did you do? You grew seaweed in that seawater sample? We did. So we took that seawater back to our lab down at IMAS, the Institute for Marine Antarctic Studies in Hobart. I constructed a trace metal free positive pressure bubble. So we used a laminar flow hood, um, which actually sucks in air through a filter and then pushes it out through the front opening. And this filter actually strips the air of any potential um, metals. So in that environment is very, very clean and then we have no contamination. And we built a big plastic bubble around this laminar flow hood. So it created this positive pressure bubble with that filtered laminar flow airflow into the bubble. And then we had a door which flaps open when you've got the air passing out to make sure that no iron or no other metals are actually able to get into that bubble. This ensures it's a very clean environment and that we're not having any contamination in that ocean seawater. We have these little chambers which I made out of plastic bottles that we had drilled holes in the top and through these holes we used silicon tubing and again you're making sure that there's going to be no potential contamination getting into these little bottles so you've got air filters that are attached to these tubes at the top so for the seaweeds to grow in these chambers we had to have the seawater and we've also got to have airflow so you've got to introduce carbon dioxide for the seaweeds to be able to photosynthesize. By having these tubes that feed through the top of these jars with air filters on them, we were ensuring that there was no contamination from the air actually going inside our experimental containers. And then we cut the seaweed into approximately five centimetre round discs and we make sure that they're clean of phytoplankton because phytoplankton can also sit on the surface of seaweed and live there. So you've got to clean the seaweed and remove the bacteria, the phytoplankton, before placing them in these chambers. We controlled the amount of iron in these chambers. We had a gradient. So we had seven concentrations in total, ranging from zero nanomoles of iron, and then we went all the way up to 40 nanomoles of dissolved iron. And we did this gradient so we could span environmentally relevant, so at that really low concentration, or no iron, no open ocean seawater, versus a more of a coastal situation, so where we do see a lot of seaweeds growing and we know that the iron concentrations are suitable for growing seaweed. So we, we wanted to have a big span of concentrations to look at how much was required for growing seaweed. What did you find? Did you find that adding more grew better seaweed or more seaweed? Yeah, yes, absolutely. So we found that at the low iron concentrations, our seaweeds were, I mean, they died very quickly. This experiment ran for two weeks and we had to, it was meant to run for longer than two weeks. We actually had to cut it short at that two week mark because the seaweeds spanning from the zero nanomoles of iron up to about 20 nanomoles of dissolved iron actually were starting to fall apart and they had very low pigment contents and what they were degrading so they weren't able to actually survive in that low iron environment versus when we looked at the higher iron concentration so at 45 to 120 nanomoles of dissolved iron you see some beautiful, highly pigmented seaweed growth. They actually, they did grow better. 
you had some surface corrugations that are typical of a macrocystis. We determined at the end of the experiment that the iron concentrations in the open ocean are actually 1,000-fold lower than are required for seaweed growth. And this was the massive finding from this experiment. So ultimately, if, if someone did want to grow seaweed artificially in the open ocean, they're going to have to add iron to the ocean. Yes, and this is... The big thing that we concluded as part of this research was that if you wanted to start growing seaweed in the open ocean, you are going to have to fertilize with iron. And this comes with its own suite of issues in terms of gaining social license. So it's currently actually illegal to fertilize the ocean with iron at the moment. And this is because in the early 2000s, they started doing these iron fertilization experiments and just realized that it wasn't going to be a feasible or very environmentally friendly thing to actually do. And in turn, when you consider growing seaweed in the open ocean, if you want to also include that iron fertilization, you then have a compounded perturbation of the open ocean. You're not only introducing seaweeds, you're also introducing extra iron. And that's going to have a whole suite of effects in terms of changing the open ocean ecology. I guess you'd be, if anyone did try and do it, they would have to balance putting in enough iron that they would get the response from the seaweed, the growth response from the seaweed that they were after without creating a pollution problem, which is basically what you were kind of doing if you're adding an extra yeah. nutrient to the system. Absolutely. And you're going to have gonna be, complex sorry. interactions. No, with complex interactions with phytoplankton as well because if you are adding iron into the open ocean then there's going to be increase in phytoplankton growth as well and so you've got a competition with the you know already naturally occurring open ocean ecology versus an introduced system as well and that's going to have flow-on effects with the biological carbon cycle in our low iron concentrations we saw significant dissolved organic carbon release by the seaweeds. So this organic carbon that is released by the seaweeds is then consumed by the microbes, the bacteria that are living in the ocean. It's actually their food source. So you could potentially be changing the ratio of bacteria and phytoplankton in the open ocean compared to what is currently naturally occurring there. And that's all going to have an impact on the uh, on the carbon levels in the seawater and all of the, and and probably atmospheric carbon as well. Absolutely. There are so many unknowns associated with this uh, that will need ongoing research before before I think it's an actually considered a potential carbon dioxide removal strategy one that's actually going to you know benefit and actually cause a reduction in the carbon dioxide levels which is the whole point of this it's a good example of how a um well thank you for thank you for joining us on the show this week Dr Payne um it's been a pleasure to talk to you and hear about your research um I hope we can get in touch again and find out what the future holds for seaweed in the ocean. Thank you for having me. I look forward to all the future discussions. That's all we have time for on another episode of Lost in Science. Thanks for joining us. Lost in Science is recorded on the lands of the Kulin Nation at the studios of 3CR and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the kind support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. 
If you would like to get in touch with us, we would love to hear from you. You can email us at lostinsightgmail.com. You can find us on Facebook where we are Lost in Science on 3CR or try us on Twitter where we are Lost in Science 1 or just tune in again next week wherever you listen to us when Stu, Claire and Chris get Lost in Science. Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.